Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Christopher Peacock, Johnsonian Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University in New York. His new book is The Primacy of Metaphysics, which is just out from Oxford University Press. So basic question in mind and metaphysics is the relation between the nature of mental content or meaning and the nature of the domain of entities and relations to which those contents refer or what they are about. Does an explanation of this relation require us to give meaning priority or is instead the metaphysics of the domain always involved in explaining the content. In his new book, Peacock argues for the idea that the metaphysics of the domain must always be involved, that one must always draw on facts about metaphysics to explain meaning, but not vice versa. Peacock applies his general thesis to various specific domains, such as temporal phenomena and the self, and he considers how his thesis bears on such further issues as the integration of metaphysics and epistemology and the limits of intelligibility. The book is fascinating, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let's go to the interview. Hello, Christopher Peacock. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. Glad to be here. Very Excited to talk about your new book, The Primacy of Metaphysics. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a basic topic in terms of the relationship between mind and meaning uh, or content uh, and, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, mind and, and the world, actually, and uh, meaning or content and reference. So before we get into the, into the details of the book itself, um, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you, you know, got interested in philosophy and then, and then the genesis of this book? Sure. So like uh, many teenagers, um, I was interested in questions of free will, discussed philosophical questions with my, my friends. Um, I took quite a lot of courses in French in high school, and we were introduced to issues in existentialism, read Wiclow and La Nausée, and that itself brought up various bits of philosophy. Um, and so I studied philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford, and I was completely captivated by the by the philosophy. Um, the first weekend, I remember, up in Exeter College, Oxford, um, went straight through the logic book. Uh, it was E.J. Lemons, Beginning in Logic, and some Hume texts, and uh, I was set. <laughs> I was completely hooked on this. Um, I was a little bit tempted to study economics, and uh, my tutor said to me, look, Peacock, um, why don't you study economics? Philosophy has been going on for two millennia. Almost no chance of making a contribution to that. Economics, you might really do something. And um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe he was right. Anyway, once you get hooked on issues of 
truth and meaning, it's it's hard to go back uh, even to the most uh, impressive parts of economics, which does still uh, interest me. I then um, I did graduate work um, uh, mainly in in Oxford, and I was there at a, a time when there were a lot of extremely good philosophers, all a little older than me: Gareth Evans, John McDowell, Crispin Wright, um, and we just uh, discussed philosophy. Um, uh, very frequently had enormous number of discussion groups, and um, uh, off I went. You asked me um, how I come to write this book, and um, you know you understand life backwards. And uh, in answering that question, I thought, yeah, there is a kind of uh, straight line here from much earlier graduate work. Like many other people in the seventies, I was um, involved in the Davidsonian program, interested in the relations between. Meaning and truth conditions, um, and once you start thinking about the relation between meaning or content more generally and truth more generally, um, many, many issues arise about the relations between intentional content and the reality that the intentional contents are apparently bad. And as I look back on what I've done, um, one of the relations I uh, was interested in for a long time was um, uh, the relation between the epistemology of a domain and the metaphysics, how you integrate them, that itself is broadly speaking, in the question of the relation between um, uh, truth conditions and various other epistemic normative issues. And in coming to um, work on the topics of this um, this book, The Primacy of Metaphysics, again, one's considering a different relation, but still a relation between these two subject matters, intentional content and uh, reality. And here, the relation I was interested in basically is the relation between the nature of meaning or intentional content and the nature of reality. And I gradually got drawn into that, um, partly because the issue just raised itself just in those terms I just formulated. I was also um, very much influenced by various anti-realist positions in Oxford at the time, um, developed by Michael Dummett and Crispin Wright. And those those writers were very skeptical about the idea of an independent discipline of metaphysics. I never shared that skepticism. <laughs> I didn't uh, agree with what they said about metaphysics. And um, it was always a worry in the back of my mind. It became much more sharply um, formulated as, as a concern rather than a background worry when I read Michael Dummett's book, Logical Basis of Metaphysics, which is very, very explicitly on the, on the same question, the relation between metaphysics and the theory of meaning. And I disagreed with with almost everything in the book, except uh, the claim that this issue was of great interest and great importance. Um, <laughs> in fact, one of the, um, when he, in the introduction to that book, he starts off as a stalking house. He starts talking about um, uh, time and our thought about time and its relation to time itself. And he says, this is one of the best cases where the theory of meaning or content is obviously prior to the metaphysics. I thought exactly the opposite. <laughs> this is one of the clearest cases in which you need to have a good account of the independent reality of temporal relations, magnitudes, and everything about temporal thought, uh, temporal perception, rode on the back of that. It was explanatory secondary. So that's how I got into the topics. And then once you raise that as a general question, you the relation between nature of reality and the nature of intentional contents or meanings that we use to think about reality, then you you immediately got two projects at once. You've got one very, very general project about how we should consider these, this relation in general and in the abstract. Um, and you ask yourself, are there any general considerations that can be brought to bear on this entirely general issue? And you've got the issue of various particular domains, time, the self, numbers, um, some of which I, I talked about in the book. And you can ask for each of those particular domains, what, what are the relations between the nature of reality 
nature of intentional content is concerned to me. So that's how I got into it. Okay, very good. Um, so yeah, so um, you you frame the book in terms of uh, a, a matter of explanatory primacy, right? Um, so yeah. there's the nature of intentional content or um, you know uh, meaning, uh, and then there's the nature of reality, um, a mind independent reality, and uh, and then. Uh, which of these comes first, right, is, is the explanatory primacy question. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there are three options. Um, you know, the metaphysics comes first, the intentional content explanation comes first, or perhaps there's no priority. They, in, in some sense, they are co-equal in, in some way. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you explain the, the question um, and then the three options in general? Yes, very good. So... Uh, yeah, the, it's very important to have the, the question sharply formulated. So, as you say, the question, as I formulated, is one of explanatory priority. Um, uh, a question about explanatory priority of one thing over another is a question about the nature of the two things for me. Um, I would say that one thing is explanatory prior to a second if you need to mention the first or draw on facts about the first in explaining the nature of the second, but not conversely in explaining the nature of the second. You don't have to um, draw on the nature of the nature of the first. Uh, uh, so it's a question about um, not what we should do or how we should approach subjects, but um, a question about whether the nature of one thing needs to be drawn upon in explaining the nature of something else. So it's using terms of arts, it's using terms of notion of the nature of something or what makes something the thing it is, um, and that's presupposed as background, I think, something somebody might question. But suppose we grant that, um, then indeed, exactly as you said, uh, take any particular subject matter, um, it might be um, uh, mental states, it might be the self, it might be numbers, it might be space or time, it might be morality, it might be epistemic norms, for any one particular domain, any one particular topic, you can then raise this question. Is um, the nature of our intentional content or the meaning of our sentences about that domain, is the nature of that meaning, nature of that intentional content, explanatory prior to the uh, nature of the things in the domain, the norms, the self, the numbers, or is the opposite true, or is perhaps neither, neither explanatory prior to the other? So that's always an interesting question. There's no, there's no domain for which that isn't isn't an interesting question. And of course, you could pursue that for each of um, philosophical domains. You might be um, uh, might engage your attention, um, but it's also absolutely irresistible. The, the impulse to generality in philosophy um, is uh, is very strong, and of course, it's it could never be completely satisfying to just answer this question, even to answer it adequately domain by domain, you want to ask the very general question, is there some general reason for thinking answers of a certain form will always be correct? Is it perhaps the case that uh, meaning or content first view is is never correct? Is it the case that uh, no priority view is always correct? Is it the case that um, it just differs by domain? If so, according to what? So those are the two concerns that, that drove me. Um, the issue for each particular domain of thought and the very general question about whether there was anything generally you could say that was domain independent. Okay. So, so your view, um, is a, 
is a metaphysics first, right? I mean, the title itself gives that gives that view away. Although you do modify that a little bit um, in terms of some no priority cases, but the for the most part, it's a metaphysics first view, um, as expressed in your what you call your primacy thesis. Um, so, can you could you um, say a bit about your position on this, the metaphysics first view? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, uh, the primary thesis um, uh, isn't actually a statement of a metaphysics uh, first thesis. The um, the primary thesis says just that the metaphysics is always involved in the nature of intentional content or meaning. Um, so what the primary thesis is is a denial of a meaning first view or a content first view. Okay. There's, there's two ways in which um, the metaphysics uh, could be involved in the nature of intentional content or meaning. One is, as you said, if by no priority view, each is involved in the other. Um, uh, and the other is the metaphys- uh, case is the, the genuinely metaphysics first view. Uh, I, I was for a time tempted by um, metaphysics first views in general, but I came to think there was no general argument for it as far as there are general arguments. The general arguments are just for the involvement of metaphysics, not necessarily for metaphysical, the priority of the metaphysics. Um, mm-hmm. So it's fair to say that the title of the book is perhaps a little misleading. <laughs> um, okay. Metaphysics is always involved, in my view. Um, but right. it's, uh, not always, it's not always the case that metaphysics first views are correct. But it's never it's secondary. It's never, absolutely. The, so the general argument that's developed early in the book is that there are in principle, arguments. There are arguments um, against meaning-first views that are completely domain-independent. Um, that's one of the ways I reacted against such meaning-first views of, of um, Michael Dummett and Crispin Wright, um, much as I respect their, their views and their intellect. Uh, it was very important for me, um, though, to actually work out in detail a few cases where the metaphysics was explanatory prior, because if there are any cases at all in which the metaphysics is explanatory prior. That means that the general arguments for meaning first views um, uh, must be unsound. They've either got false premises or there's, they involve invalid argumentation. So it's important psychologically encouraging to, to work on perhaps the spatio-temporal case or the case of the self um, to think more about um, what will be involved in metaphysics uh, first view. And that can give clues as to why I think meaning first views are, are never correct. So would you like me to say something about why I think the meaning first views are never? Yes, that was my next my next question, and also, um, uh, you know, what it, what it, what it means more specifically to say that you know, metaphysics is involved. Yes. Okay. Very good. So um, the general argument that I develop um, uh, for saying that the metaphysics is always involved. Um, turns on the nature of sense or way of thinking of something. Um, One of the uh, positions that's immensely influenced not just me, but other other thinkers um, about the nature of sense is the idea that uh, you individuate a way of thinking or a concept in some very general sense. You individuate a concept or way of thinking by specifying a corresponding relation. And the corresponding relation you have to specify is the relation that has to hold between a thinker and an entity in order for the thinker to be thinking of that entity under that concept. Um, So this is the idea that 
there's a relation that individuates the concept, the relation in which you have to stand to something in order to think of it under that concept. So in very simple cases, it'll be extremely uncontroversial. Um, if you're looking at a computer screen at the moment and you think that computer, the relation in which you have to stand to something in order to be thinking of it under that perceptual mode of presentation of that computer is simply that it's the computer that you're perceiving in a certain, in a certain way. Um, I think this idea generalizes to all concepts. Relations are always more fundamental in the individuation of concepts. And in a way, this is, um, uh, this is a route to making Frege's conception of the third realm less, less objectionable. <laughs> the idea that there's eternal realm of senses that are completely independent of thinkers, um, very, very problematic, um, very difficult to swallow when thinks it can't be right. And um, when you, however, when you individuate um, a concept or sense in terms of the relation in which you think it has to stand to something in order to be thinked under a concept, um, uh, the third realm is then reintroduced to the first and second realms. Um, you see it as something that's um, built out of relations that are involved in uh, mental, the mental and physical world. What's the relevance of this to the, um, the claims about the primacy of metaphysics? The relevance is this. If it's the case that you individuate a concept by the relation in which someone has to stand to something in order to be thinking under that concept, the relations in which a thinker can stand to something are constrained by the metaphysics of the domain that you're thinking about, They're constrained by those relations. So no one thinks, for example, that the way you think of a natural number one is by standing in a causal relation to natural one, because number one, because number one does not stand in any such causal explanatory relations. Um, so this means that the, the metaphysics of a domain, metaphysics of an entity, constrains the relations in which you think you can stand to it. That already means, I think, that the pure meaning first view that you get in uh, Michael Dummett and Crispin Wright and certain other writers cannot be true. It cannot be true that the metaphysics just always rides on the back of, doesn't ever explain anything about, doesn't constrain the theory of concepts or the theory of meaning. That's impossible. If it's really the case that um, the way you individuate a concept is via a thinker's relation to something when they um, think of something under that concept, um, it cannot but be the case that the, the nature of the object, the nature of the domain you're thinking about, constrains the relations in which you center it. So that's constraint, um, and that general argument—that general argument—is not yet an argument for a metaphysics first view. That constraint um, could equally be respected by a no priority view, because it might be the case that the metaphysics of the domain constrains uh, uh, the ways of thinking that are available after you're thinking about that domain. But it may also be that the ways of thinking about the domain constrain the metaphysics. That's not all that that simple argument. Um, and indeed, I came to think there are perfectly respectable, interesting uh, cases. There's a no priority cases. Uh, but there is, on my view, a general domain-independent argument against the meaning first views. I, I suppose, um, I don't know if, you know, Dummett says this precisely or at all, but um, you know, I suppose the, one, of the, one of the questions that might be raised is that... Um, uh, for the relations to be constrained by the metaphysics of the domain, it sort of depends. Well, do you, do you mean the metaphysics of the domain independently of how we think about it? Or is it the metaphysics of the domain as we think of it? 
so it seems like the second way would would imply a mean a some in other words to think of to think about the metaphysics you need to already have intentional contents it's certainly true that to think about the metaphysics just as to think about anything you have to have intentional content but it doesn't follow that the the metaphysics of the entities thought about involves um, concepts or intentional content. So let, let's t- let's um, we've been talking at a level of great generality. Um, yeah. let, let's fix on a particular example. So let's take um, spatial perceptual content or temporal perceptual content. You perceive something as square. You perceive a line as straight. You perceive something as a certain angle um, uh, to your left. Um, in my view, uh, you can't give a good account of those observational concepts without talking about our ability to perceive um, those concepts as instantiated, to perceive something as square, as straight. And if you ask um, what would make a state a state of such perception, I think it's impossible to give a good account of that without talking about the uh, capacity for such states to be explained about by mind-independent spatial properties, mind-independent temporal properties. So the, the shape itself, in good cases, can explain your perception of something as having a certain shape. The duration of some event can explain your perception of the duration. The temporal ordering of some events can explain your perceiving them as occurring in that temporal order. And what does the explaining there are the properties, relations themselves. When we think about those properties and relations, we think about them always, as always under intentional contents. But the explanation is done by the properties, relations um, themselves. And uh, I would regard um, the development of metaphysics, of space, time, properties, temporal order, as something uh, concerning investigation of the nature of those properties and and relations themselves, not, not how we think about them. So our ability to think about them in certain ways, especially perceptual-based ways, perceptually-based ways, um, I think um, requires uh, that there be properties, relations, magnitudes, orderings uh, that have a nature independently of how we represent them. Okay, so um, uh, so about like the truth of the matter, right? Um, yeah. So uh, how do I guess you know boldly stated? How does how does truth come in? I mean, we could have there could there there is a metaphysics. Let's assume um, of the spatial domain um, and uh, our relations to that are constrained by the nature of that domain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and our explanation of the of the content is going to reference that domain. But of course we, we could be wrong about that, right? Of course, um, yes. Yeah. So, all the time, yeah. Um, right, right. So, so how does, <laughs> right, right, hopefully not. Um, so how does, how does, how does like the truth come in? So this is content, uh, you know, individuation of content, um, is there is there some essential relationship here between the individuation of the content and the truth of the content? Um, there's some essential connection between um, truth conditions and, and um, this theory, yes. So what explains a perceptual state in a good case? When you perceive something as square and it really is square, you, you perceive certain 
symmetries uh, that are specific to perceiving it as square. You perceive uh, the figure as um, closed rectangular figure, and the symmetries you perceive are symmetries about the bisectors of the sides rather than the bisectors of the angles. Um, in a good case, the objects having the property explains your perception of that object as given under a certain concept, having that property as given under a con- certain concept. Um, so uh, what's being done here is some kind of attempt to individuate the concepts in terms of the relations uh, that you have to have to things in order to be thinking of them under those concepts. And in good cases, uh, the perception of the state of affairs explains your, um, I beg your pardon, the, the obtaining of the state of affairs involving objects and properties, things at the level of reference, explain your perception of uh, uh, objects having those properties where the objects are presented in a certain way, the properties are given in a certain way. Um, but throughout, throughout this, um, uh, this approach, you can't really give a good account of, I think, of, of senses or concepts of ways of thinking without being implicated in matters of truth conditions throughout. So the very idea of, um, of a, uh, a way of thinking of a particular individual is, on my view, based on the idea of a relation to an individual, um, similarly, for, similarly for properties and ways of thinking. And um, what's doing the explanatory work in basic cases where we do come to know that something's case is the objects really having that property. Uh, so this is, this is an account under which um, the nature of sense is intertwined with reference throughout. Um, uh, that's very, very different. There are, some, there are some approaches in conceptual or semantics in which it's, it's suggested that you can sometimes give a good account of a concept without talking about the nature of referential relations at all. Um, I'm very opposed to that for all sorts of reasons. It's somewhat orthogonal to the main thesis of the book, but I think it's fair to say that the the book is committed in various ways to saying that there's this intertwining of the level of sense and the level of reference. Okay. So that's sort of, um, I was thinking about uh, the relationship between uh, this view and uh, some form of content externalism. Right? Yes. Which- you do discuss. So could you yes. maybe to, to help clarify, it might be helpful to say how uh, your view differs from, or at least is related to um, content externalism or, or anti-individualism? Yeah, very important issue. So um, as you conversation implicates, um, there are commitments throughout this material to uh, anti-individualism about content, the very idea of Intentional content is being individuated by environmental relations. Um, it's already an anti-individualistic view. But yeah, you raised the very specific question of um, how then am I just different from meaning externalism? Is this a kind of special case of meaning externalism? Of course, it is in some sense a special case. Um, but uh, one of the distinctions I try to draw very sharply is the um, uh, the the primary thesis, the thesis that the metaphysics is always involved in the individuation of content um, from a more generalized um, externalism about meaning. So, for instance, I think a pure meaning-first theory of the kind that Dummett or Wright might espouse could still be externalist. So theorists um, who are tempted by the approach of of Dummett and Wright um, give accounts of meaning in terms of assertability conditions. They say... Um, you specify meaning by specifying the 
circumstances in which a sentence is canonically assertable. Um, and uh, there's no reason for such theorists to um, restrict the assertability conditions to internal conditions. They could uh, formulate assertability conditions in terms of environmental conditions that uh, make it appropriate to assert um, a certain sentence or to make a certain predication. And they could do it in terms of the social environment too, if they wanted. Uh, there's nothing in their structure or form of their theory to prevent that. But that would still be a meaning first view. Um, it would still be a meaning first view. So the kind of um, anti-individualism and the externalism uh, to which I'm committed is, is much more radical than that. It isn't just saying that meaning sometimes involves um, external relations. Um, it's making the much, much stronger claim that you can't even individuate a sense or a way of thinking um, without being committed to facts about the uh, the metaphysics of the, the domain in question. Okay, okay. So, um, which which kind of leads to uh, my next question, and and this is one of close close to my heart is how about uh, domains? I mean, you, you, I want to get to some of the specific cases that you yeah. talk about um, uh, in a moment, but. Um, uh, let, let's think about domains where everything is sort of in flux, right? You know, where we don't really don't know what the metaphysics is, or it's changing. Yeah. Our basic, our, you know, our basic understanding of that domain is um, is being revised, right? And and of course, one might say, well, you know, just about everything, maybe not mathematics so much, but even that um, is always under revision, particularly mm -hmm. if it's a physical you know, broad, broadly speaking, physical domain. Um, so how, do, how, does, how does your view um, cohere with the idea of, you know, of, of the metaphysics of the domain not being, uh, I don't know if I want to say known or uh, justifiably believed or, you know, where we're, we're just sort of like not sure what quite to say about the metaphysics. And that, and that doesn't seem to be a, particularly a rare sort of case. I mean, you can even Absolutely. say that, you know, the standard model of, of, of the universe, you know, that's certainly in flux and, and, yeah. you know, from all, from there, I mean, keep, just keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me make a few clarifications. Um, okay. My view is about uh, what's explanatory prior. It's not a view about methodology or about what we should do first or what topic we should approach first. Um, so it's quite consistent um, with the view that the metaphysics is prior in some particular domain. Let's take the spatio-temporal case, and let's take a very, very simple case. Let's take um, geometry, for instance. We we, we perceive um, certain figures as straight-sided. We perceive certain things as right angles. Um, uh, I would say that the that's a very clear case in which uh, Spatial properties, relations, orderings are um, prior in the order of explanation to our ability to perceive those relations as instantiated, prior in the order of explanation to meaning um, and the meaning of spatial discourse. Does that mean in making that a metaphysical claim that we've settled uh, questions about whether space really is Euclidean or whether it's uh, really hyperbolic or not? Absolutely not. So what... Um, what actually, which truths hold for that domain, what relations hold, what general principles hold, what axioms hold for actual physical space that we perceive 
um, there we can be ready for all kinds of great surprises. Um, uh, that doesn't really undermine the claim that the in this this case the spatial properties and relations are prior in the order of explanation, in the sense that I'm interested in. Uh, it, we may, in many cases, uh, need to radically reconceive um, what's actually true of these properties and relations. But I'm talking about the question of what makes it possible to think about those properties and relations in the first in the first place. Mm-hmm. Let me also say something about um, uh, this, the question you you raise about um, uh, conceptual change, times of great turmoil. Uh, we don't have any kind of immediate a priori access to the correct metaphysics of a, a subject matter. I think it's sometimes extremely difficult to get the metaphysics right. Um, I think there's cases where um, we're tempted intuitively to say that there's, there's conceptual change or conceptual development, but what's actually going on is really an articulation of some concept we had all along and was extremely hard to articulate. It's a very, very famous case is the case of the limit of a series and continuity. Really great thinkers like Leibniz and Newton had great difficulty articulating precisely. It wasn't until Weierstrass and people in Bolzano in the 19th century, you got the um, delta epsilon explanation of what, what continuity was, what the limit was. Um, was it the same concept? Yes, it was, absolutely. It, um, one of the great things about Leibniz and Newton was that they actually succeeded in latching onto that concept. And if you ask what's the metaphysics of continuity itself, um, the metaphysics is, is given by the you know, classical Weierstrass kind of characterization. Um, what this means, I think, is that uh, as far as um, not the order of explanation, but the order of discovery goes, um, we, we really are absolutely in the position of Neurath sailors who are rebuilding the ship as they, as they float out and try not to sink. Um, uh, I take the same view about... Um, the relation between metaphysics and epistemology, as I take about the relation between metaphysics and the theory of intentional content. We're, we're trying simultaneously to satisfy a whole lot of constraints at once. Good account of epistemology, a good account of reasons, good account of explanation. Um, what I'm saying in, in this book is that um, there's a background uh, constraint and something that we can identify in advance um, that it will be the case, given the nature of intentional content, that a good account will always have the metaphysics being involved. But it doesn't follow that you can uh, provide the correct metaphysics without doing a huge amount of epistemological, genuinely scientific, genuinely substantive work. Um, so although, on my view, the metaphysics is always involved, it doesn't follow that metaphysics is somehow the queen of the sciences or that this is first philosophy. Um, all those claims of epistemological priority, I think, are, are really deeply misconceived. Um, I think as far as um, the evidence for philosophical views, and even for constitutive views go, um, the holism of the evidence is absolutely pervasive in this domain. Um, okay, so... Um, so th- there are, there are, I believe, like the in the the social domain, um, which which you don't is not one of your particular cases, but I you mention it as one where a no priority view, yeah, um, uh, is 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 likely. Um, um, can you could you say something about um, which domains you think a no priority view is 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 more likely, and then also um, because of this. 
the interaction here of between you know the epistemic issues with the metaphysical issues yeah. uh why not just go for a completely you know a generalized no priority view um well, uh, basically, I don't think it's true. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so I give various examples. There are worked out examples in the book, and I'm sure there'll be controversies about each particular case, but I think an extremely good case can be made in the, in the spatio-temporal case, right. in the case of the okay. self, in the case of natural numbers, that... Um, there's genuine priority of the metaphysics, and in the case of magnitudes, to a genuine priority of the metaphysics over the theory of intentional content. And the only way to substantiate that, of course, is in each of those domains to actually develop positive metaphysics of numbers, right. magnitudes, of the self, and then show how the um, particular ways of thinking of those subject matters of numbers of oneself, particular magnitudes, so forth, um, uh, uh, is possible only because the mental states stand in certain kinds of uh, relations to the um, expansionary prior of metaphysics of domain. So you've got to do the work case by case. Um, but it is extremely plausible, yes, that some cases are no priority cases. So um, the secondary quality case has been widely accepted, widely accepted that uh, for something to be read, the metaphysical property, being read, property itself, um, has to be explained in some way complex, it's kind of a complex function of the capacity of people to experience something as read. And the as read there brings in some element of intentional content into the account of the property itself. So anybody who holds a view like that is going to end up with some kind of um, no priority view about the relation between metaphysics of secondary qualities, uh, like color, taste, um, and uh, uh, intentional contents um, concerning them. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, the, the social cases are extremely interesting. Um, uh, fictional characters that have been discussed a lot in the philosophy language case in the literature stemming from Saul Kripke on these matters. Um, nobody thinks that uh, what's true about fictional characters is metaphysically independent of social practices about telling stories. It's a big, kind of, uh, crazy view. On the other hand, it is extremely plausible that it's very difficult to um, get an account of, uh, of talk about fictional characters that just eliminates them as entities, in which case... Um, you've got another no-priority case. I think one of the most interesting no-priority cases, which I think um, there's a lot more work to be done, is the um, case of something like uh, something being a law in a community. Um, I don't mean a, a psychological law. Um, uh, I mean um, it's being legal, legal in the community, do this, that, or the other. Um, I think you can make a very, very good case that... Um, what it is for something to be a law in a community can't be fully explained without actually using the notion of a law. It's very plausible. It's important that people in the community consider it as a law, not just as something that everybody does, not just that something you'll be um, suffer bad consequences for if you violate it. Um, that's a possible view. Suppose that's suppose that's the case. Then it, um, uh, you what it is for something to be a law in a community um, that metaphysical property in concrete it has to be explained partly in terms of people's attitudes to its, its being a law. And if that's true, it raises some um, really, really interesting questions about how we should conceive of this, um, this intertwining, this entanglement of being a law and being thought of as a law. I think in that particular case, too, it raises very interesting questions about particular theories in jurisprudence. The famous work of H.L.A. Hart on 
rule of recognition that was given in terms that don't mention laws. You know, that people, people would be very opposed to the idea that there's this kind of entanglement. But the entanglement is um, is plausible in some ways. So uh, I think there's there's really two areas of investigation. You're quite right. They're ones that I, I haven't really engaged with, but I hope some people do eventually. One is one is what's the nature of this entanglement? How um, um, how how is it possible? How does it work in detail? And the other very, very important question is the question of acquisition. Um, because in the case of uh, the metaphysics first cases, you can give a very good account of acquisition by talking about better and better sensitivity to uh, to the mind-independent properties um, that are involved in the metaphysics first case, because they're not mind-independent properties in the case of secondary qualities, in the case of fictional characters, in the case of what is something to be a law in a given community. Um, so the issue of acquisition is is especially pressing in in those um, no priority cases, and um, yeah, it's a topic for further work. Yeah. Um, so, getting to some particular cases, I mean, you've you've yeah. mentioned the the the, uh, the case of um, like magnitudes, what you call it, like you know, distance, spatial spatial concepts, and and, and spatial metaphysics, um, time. Uh, self and, and numbers, of course, where you, you adopt the Platonist view. Um, maybe you could say, you haven't said much about the self or the first person. So, mm-hmm. so maybe, you know, the others, the magnitudes one is, is, is one of your kind of paradigm cases of a metaphysics first. But I think the self might be a more interesting case, um, mm-hmm. you know, given our time limits, uh, because a lot of, you know, there's, there's certainly a large strand um in uh in philosophy of the self which which might find that to be a metaphysics first uh uh domain somewhat surprising okay yep absolutely true yes uh, yeah so <laughs> so could you could you say you you know how you defend the this you know how how your general view applies to this particular case yeah so let me give a little bit of autobiography initially by by way of background um um, as I say in the preface of the book, I started work on this general issue about um, the relation between metaphysics on the one hand and theory of intentional content and meaning on the other um, about 10 or 11 years ago. Um, uh, but I interrupted work on the general project because of my great interest in the special case of the first person and the self. And indeed, I wrote an earlier book on that, about the Mirror of the World book. Um, and that was one of the things actually that was encouraging to me in thinking about you. The, the issue, it was encouraging in that uh, here was a case in which you could develop a, a positive theory, uh, which really did take the metaphysics as more fundamental and give an account of this absolutely classically, philosophically problematic concept of the first person, um, the I concept, and attempt to individuate it in terms of relations to subjects of experiences, the selves themselves, if I put it. So um, one of the things that um, I found encouraging was um, the idea that there's a notion of a a subject of experience um, uh, that does not intrinsically involve the capacity to self-ascribe, doesn't involve um, uh, on the part of the person that's the subject of experience any use of the first person at all. So one of the things that I argued for in earlier work was the idea that um, there could be subjects of what I call degree zero. So these would be subjects, agents, and perhaps there are some um, some creatures 
uh, some animals, perhaps some insects that are like this. Uh, these are creatures that represent a world as being around a certain location. Around here, there's certain things in a certain direction from here, certain things distance from here. Um, they perhaps have a map of the world. They keep track of a here, a here pointer on their map of the world, if you like. Um, but they don't self-represent. They don't, don't use the first person concept. Um, those are subjects. Those are subjects of experience. You can give a good account, of, I think, of um, what it is to be the, the same subject over time in terms of the capacity of those creatures to integrate information over time, to build up um, a conception of the world over time, but not, um, not involving self-representation. And I think a good account of most primitive form of use of the first person would individuate the first person um, by saying a lot about what it is to um, uh, judge IMF, to make first-person judgments, um, to be in first-person states, by anchoring them in that more primitive level of mental states, these creatures at degree zero, that are subjects but don't yet self-represent. Um, a huge amount more to be said about that. Um, one of the things I also became very interested in um, was the idea, the very anti-human idea, um, that uh, if you pursued these matters carefully enough, um, you could also give some arguments that the, the human approach, the idea that somehow um, subjects are composed from uh, individual mental events, are constructed from them. Um, uh, you get um, a rationale, I think, for why that's, that kind of approach is in principle mistaken. Uh, and the rationale is this. Um, if you think about um, some of the particular perceptual states that even creatures at degree zero that don't self-represent, can be in. Um, perceptual states, for example, they represent um, there being a red thing in that direction from here, a square thing over there, and so forth. Um, if you ask what makes it the case that they're in perceptual states with those particular um, rich representational contents, um, the compelling answer, I think, is that um, they have those representational contents because of their capacity to explain um, explain the, the actions of those subjects, uh, their significance for future actions. They will uh, represent there being square things at a certain location on the map of the world and so forth. Um, what that means is that um, these states have the representational perceptual content they do because of their explanatory significance for the subject, for the subject who enjoys those states. Um, that means that the notion, the very notion of a subject, the entity, the subject that's enjoying these experiences, um, is presupposed, is drawn upon in the account of what what makes these these perceptual states. Um, and if that's correct, that means the the Humean or neo-Humean, neo-Humean constructivist project is is topsy turvy. It's using materials to which it has no right to <laughs> presume. Um, if it's the case that those mental events with certain perceptual contents. Their very nature, their metaphysics involves relation to a subject, which is what I just suggested. Um, then you're really presupposing the, the existence and nature of subjects in your in your building blocks. You haven't really built up from building blocks whose nature is independent of subjects themselves. Um, so that's a topic where I think, I mean, the classical philosophical interest, but I also think that it's um, one which you can get some understanding. One of the ways in which particular concepts, like the first person concept, can be individuated in relation to the metaphysics of subjects themselves. So, so would you, would you agree that, I mean, it sounds like, 
there's this primitive or degree zero self which doesn't involve or you know can be possessed in, in a entity that does not have the capacity for self-representation um and that the 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 metaphysics first view might be appropriate for the primitive self to put it that way um Mm -hmm. that there would that the self-representational self if 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 i can put it that way might be a no priority view so you can sort of layer that yeah no absolutely so this um there, there's a very long, very distinguished tradition that would be very opposed to what I've just asserted. Um, and sometimes people say, oh, well, there's a different kind of self when you're involved in social relations or interpersonal relations. Um, I'm extremely skeptical of such views. I think it's one and the same thing. It's when, um, they're both involved in the, um, uh, the more primitive kinds of representations of the world around you. And that is also involved in social relations. Think, so you think of yourself as standing in certain kind of um, more sophisticated social, interpersonal relations. Um, uh, that that would that would need argument. I, I realise that, um, but I'm extremely sceptical of the idea that there's something ambiguous about the first person concept um, as it features both in the more sophisticated uh, ways of thinking that are involved in our interpersonal interactions and the more primitive. Um, much more primitive things of seeing something standing in certain relation to me. Um, I think it's the same me, exactly the same I, and I don't think it's just the same at the level of reference. I think it's the same at the, the level of level of sense. And that needs to be argued in detail. I, I, I do acknowledge that. But I'm very skeptical um, of the idea that you need some kind of new entity that, of which a no priority account is correct. Um, uh, that there are any phenomena that can't be explained um, without just uh, using this notion of a much more primitive, metaphysically first prior notion of a subject, of which you can then have more and more sophisticated representations of rather more prim- primitive way of thinking about a first person, and then you conceive of much richer um, interpersonal, social, emotional relations in which you stand. I think it's the same entity throughout, and I think it's the same first person way of thinking. And what gets enriched is the structure of relations, the network of relations, in which you think of that very same thing yourself, thinking in the very same way as me, um, those are just richer, richer sets of relations in which you can represent yourself as standing. So okay. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical about the idea you need a no priority ontology of the first person. But I realise there's many, many people hold the opposite view. So it needs argument in detail. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, so there's a number of implications of the view that you that you consider um, towards the end. Um, uh, regarding, for example, the, the boundaries of, of intelligibility, of what we can conceive. Um, and also, as you mentioned uh, previously, um, this integration of, of metaphysics and epistemology, um, mm-hmm. um, among, and among other implications. Um, could you say a bit about uh, the... Well, those I'm, I'm I'm interested in both of those questions. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm interested in all of them. But um, yeah. uh, can you say something about the bounds of, of intelligibility? Yeah. So th- this is a question of absolutely absorbing interest to me. Um, it has been my my whole life. Um, I remember thinking about it as a teenager. I wrote about it um, maybe twenty or thirty years ago. Um, uh, it still absorbs me. So. There's almost uniform agreements in the philosophical community that there are um, 
there are certain alleged hypotheses that really don't make sense, that they draw, um, they attempt to draw distinctions where there's no difference. And um, there's a long list of these. I mentioned the cases of um, Cartesian egos, absolute space and time, um, certain kinds of conception of, of possibilia and the theory of modality, um, uh, quiddities, as they featured more recently in, in philosophy. Um, many, many people, not everyone, but many people agree that um, uh, there are certain conceptions here that make, um, that, make, that make no sense. And these are cases not where something just is impossible, but um, there's actually some kind of failure of, failure of sense. Um, one of the things that occurred to me when I was working on this general approach to the relations between metaphysics on the one hand and theory of intentional content on the other is that this account of uh, concepts as founded in the relations that have to hold between a thinker and something in order to be thinking of something under a concept provides a non-verificationist constraint on genuine significance. It provides a constraint on genuine meaningfulness of their genuinely being a content that you can formulate without any kind of commitment to evidentialism or verificationism or the various other problematic ways in which people have tried to dispose of these cases which people are drawing a, a distinction where there seems to be no difference. Why do I say that? Well, for there to be a, a genuine concept, there has to be a genuine relation, genuine relation in which you stand to something in order to, which, in order to be thinking of it under that concept. And that suggests there's, um, there's a possible defect. There's a, a way in respect in which an alleged concept can be spurious. And one way in which it can be spurious is that um, somebody is conceiving of a domain, conceiving of some, an ontology in such a fashion that it makes it impossible to specify, um, impossible for even to be a relation that allows the thinker to latch onto one rather than another entity in this alleged domain. And I, I claim in the, the final long chapter of the book um, that uh, this provides a diagnosis of what's wrong with absolute space, absolute time, Cartesian egos. In all of these cases, the domain is considered in, in such a way that you cannot, in the nature of the case, uh, do anything um, to latch on to one rather than another of the things uh, as they're conceived in this problematic metaphysics. So um, let's consider the case of um, absolute space for a moment. Um, if you look at a lot of literature in the philosophy of physics and absolute space, there's a lot of talk about how the famous celebrated Newtonian conception um, really provide, really sets all kinds of epistemic problems, they say, talk about uh, seems to be very hard to make sense of this distinction between universe being stationary in absolute space as opposed to moving uniform in absolute space. And people tend to talk about it being embarrassment that this distinction is drawn. They say it's what's certainly true, it's epistemologically problematic. Um, I say it's much more than epistemologically problematic. I say that it's actually impossible to think of some particular frame of reference as the absolute frame of reference. So one way of introducing this issue is this. Um, uh, very, very distinguished and created an important um, philosopher of physics, Tim Maudlin, in um, perhaps his only notorious paper, says that there's just no problem in talking about absolute location, absolute time. Um, you can always just latch onto an absolute location by simply saying here. And um, it's certainly true that if you believe in absolute space, any particular utterance um, uh, will occur at a particular location in absolute space and time. It doesn't follow you succeed in latching onto that. And when somebody says here, even if space were absolute, if you ask 
Well, how have they succeeded in latching onto a, um, something with um, that's uh, got absolute identity over time rather than something that's a, a sliding location through absolute space? Um, it's really not possible to give an answer to that question. Um, you can't say or do anything that we distinguish between. You're thinking about absolute location as opposed to location relative to a frame of reference that's moving uniformly um, in absolute space. And you can make a similar argument about time. I think you can make a similar argument about Cartesian egos. Um, you know, people, uh, very famous argument in the footnote in, in Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason, uh, complains against Descartes that uh, Descartes has really given no account of the distinction between there being one continuing subject and there being successive Cartesian egos that perfectly pass their memories and capacities on to successes. In all of these cases, I think there's what you might call an excess dimension. The problematic ontology is drawing distinctions between sameness of difference of location in absolute space, sameness and difference of ego, sameness and difference of quiddity, quiddity or sameness and difference of various possible objects, um, that in the nature of the case, you can't give an account of uh, what relation a thinker would have to stand in to that object in order to be thinking of one of these problematic objects. Um, so these are, I would say these are spurious, spurious concepts, spurious, spurious notions. And the grounds for saying that are not, not verificationist at all. This is entirely consistent with there being legitimate uh, contents, legitimate propositions whose truth values we could never discover. The problem here is, is much more much more fundamental. Um, so uh, this is a case in which um, I would actually say that the uh, this problematic ontologies um, trace back actually to a defect in in meta- the metaphysics of the domain. Actually, somebody who really believes in absolute space or absolute um, time or believes in Cartesian egos. Uh, they actually have an explanatory problem. It's it's certainly true that you can't give it a good account of what it is to latch onto one of these, uh, one or other of these entities, latch onto one or another Cartesian ego, latch onto the distinction between same or difference of absolute location, absolute time, so forth. Um, but that's a special case, I think, of a, a much more basic explanatory defect. Um, I think that uh, it's a special case of these these postulated entities exp- in the very nature of the case, explaining nothing at all. Um, so ultimately, a lot of the constraints on um, intelligibility, constraints on being a genuine concept, for me, actually stem in the end from constraints on what's what's a good metaphysics. So that's another sense in which metaphysics also has a certain kind of um, primacy, in my view, and the explanation of the of what's a good sense and what's not a good sense. Mm. Well, I would love to pursue that, <laughs> but... Um... We are almost out of time, unfortunately. So um, uh, that's a bummer. Uh, so uh, let me just um, close by asking, um, what is your next project? Will you will you pursue this particular strand, or is there are there other projects that are already underway following this book? What, so what do you there are. Um, so. As I said in the preface of the book, I, I tried to keep this book, even though it's on very, very large general themes, I, I did my best to keep it really concise. <laughs> um, there, are, there are other topics that cry out to be, um, uh, be developed within this framework. Um, one is a good account of the normative. Well, there's historically been really 
problematic issues about relation between the metaphysics, if there can be metaphysics for norms, and our thought about norms. So I'm certainly interested, and I'm currently working on the normative, both on epistemic norms and moral norms, and considering um, how they would uh, be accommodated within this framework. And I do think the framework suggests various um, various possibilities. In the case of epistemic norms, of course, this is a case in which the norms actually, um, if you get a good account of the relation between the metaphysics and our ways of thinking of these norms, um, since they're epistemic norms themselves, that will also involve some connection with the integration challenge I discussed earlier, the correct integration of the metaphysics and epistemology. Um, there are other things I'm working on that are completely different from this. It's a permanent, long-standing interest of mine has been the perception of music, and I, I continue to work on that. But I, as far as I can see, that's utterly independent of the claims of this book. Okay. Well, um, that's been fascinating, and uh, there's plenty more in the book and, and plenty to think about and talk about, but um, I'm afraid that our time is about up for this. So thank you for these absolutely terrific questions. Really focused. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed the book, and I, I you know, raised a lot of issues that I'm from a different perspective that I'm, that I'm thinking about. So I appreciate your work, and I look forward to seeing the future projects that you are working on. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Christopher Peacock, Johnsonian Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University. We've been talking about his new book, The Primacy of Metaphysics, just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>